Praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise God. The response should be, yes, amen. Praise God. <laughs> and that's what we, yes, he deserves to be praised. Brothers, if you want to get closer, sisters, uh, that's totally fine. We would be glad to see you here closer a little bit. Um, we always encourage that. What we don't encourage is drinks in the service. And I just want to remind that uh, for all of us, we don't encourage any coffee or any other drinks except for water, if you need water. Um, thumbs up. Welcome to the service. Welcome to the uh, youth service. Today is October 1st. Can you imagine? The year is just... Is just uh, the time is failing us. <laughs> the year is coming to an end, and it's amazing um, what God has done already through this year. Amen? In my life, I believe in your life, you've seen a lot of blessings. A lot of blessings. And you know, um, it's good to be here. I feel younger. I feel encouraged when I'm here. I feel that this is the place where God preparing us, preparing young people, young men, uh, young women for something great. Because you have a lot in front of you. You have a whole life in front of you. And we have to prove our loyalty to Jesus Christ in this wicked and evil generation. Amen. Amen. That's a tough order. I'll tell you, that's a tough order to follow. But we have the Holy Spirit. We have God with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. Amen. Amen. That's such an encouragement. It's such an encouragement that we have a leader who walked the path, who showed the path. Path of humility, a path of uh, not necessarily glory here on earth, but in eternity, He's glorified. And today, um, I'm going to start with a simple verse where we'll go straight into worship, uh, praising the Lord, and we'll have some um, time in the Word today, time hearing what God prepared for us, prepared for me. From, for, from me, what is expected from me? What God wants from me today? He wants me to, two words, very simple words, draw near. There's not a lot expected from me today. Jesus has done it all. Jesus have done it all. He did the hard work. He walked the path. He secured salvation for you and me. He showed the example. He is our example. What's required from me today is to draw near. That's the only requirement. That's the only requirement today that we would draw near to him. If you read through Hebrews, I'm just amazed um, 
what God is doing, what God has done. But the main thing that he has done, he became a sacrifice. He became a sacrifice for us. He took my sin, he took all the shame of my life and he sacrificed himself on the cross. And today, the only thing that he requires of us or he expects from us, he does not make us. God does not make anyone to serve him. And I believe that you're here because you wanted to be here, amen? And I'm here because I wanted to be here. But God is not making people to serve him. What he is waiting for is that you and I draw near. And let me ask you, whose responsibility? Who is fully in control of drawing near to God? Whose choice that is? Is it God's choice? Or is it my choice? My dear friend, let me tell you, today you are the one who can draw near to God. You are the one who can open the possibilities, endless possibilities with Almighty God through relationship with Him. Through relationship with Him. The possibilities are endless. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that amazing? The only thing I need to do today is to draw near. Let's draw near today in prayer and in worship. Let's stand up. God is good. And all the time. That is one of my favorite things to kind of repeat. Sometimes I'll, I'll wake up and I'll, I'll say, God is good. And then I'll say, all the time, all the time, God is good. And it's, it's true. It's very true. And it's, it's even better when we get to see it in our own lives, that God is good. Amen. Now, something that I had on my heart, this is um, something that I've gone through, as in I used to struggle with, and then I learned how to overcome. And I want to start off with a little testimony, as in I remember as, as, as young as I was, I remember when, um, when I'd, I'd get upset really quick, or I would... I would lose my temper and I would get upset at somebody, one of my siblings, or I'd raise my voice and then I'd, I'd turn around and I'd, I'd feel bad about it. I'd feel convicted about it. And I'm like, why do I have to be this way? And I, I, I remember that as a kid. I remember it so vividly where I, I, would, I would upset somebody and then I'd walk away and I'd feel bad. And I'm, I'm, I'm always wondering, why am I like this? Why is... Why do I have to be, be like this? I always feel bad about it. And I, I had something holding me back for even going back to apologize. I had something that I didn't want to go back. I, it, was, it was me being prideful. I didn't want to look bad in, in front of somebody else because I wanted to be right. And growing older, this, this same thing would happen to me. But the older I got, the, the less it convicted me and the more I got into it. And... After I started getting closer to God and I started reading more into the Word, I, I started to seek more for what, what, what is it that, that makes us this way? What is it that, 
that I'm losing that I cannot defeat this. Or if for me, I just didn't understand why I would get, like, I had, I had a problem with getting, getting angry real fast. Or I just had a problem with having a quick temper. And I, I didn't understand why. I, would, I was sometimes thinking I'd cry and I'd walk away from just yelling at somebody or raising my voice. And I was like, why? Why am I like, like, what is the, why am I going through this? And I want to read a verse from Romans 6, Romans chapter 6. Um, I want to read from verse 1 to 14, because um, I, I was going to pick little parts, but you can't really understand the little parts if you read the whole paragraph, so I'm going to go for it, okay? Romans 6, verse 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were, burned with, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin for once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, going back to verse 6 towards the end where it says um, that we are no longer be slaves to sin. When, when we constantly, like going back to how I was, I, I would constantly get upset at people or I would constantly have these like bursts of um, anger or how you would say it, but I was a slave to sin. I, 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 it was like a bondage, this, this, this feeling that I had. It was, I was feeling enslaved to sin. And the first time I read this, and I've, I heard it in a sermon first, and then I, I got into the Word and I started reading into it, and it, it sort of got to me. I was like, I'm, I am a slave to sin. A, a slave, when you are in bondage, you cannot do your own will. You can't, like if, if someone, if a, if a owner or someone has a slave back in the day, that slave could not leave when he wanted to. That slave could not do anything he pleased. He had to follow the owner. And in this case, the devil is, has, has the, the chains to you. He controls you. And even as a child, when I would, when I would get upset or when I would, when I would start, like, when I'd get angry or in, this, in general, I would, I would start feeling bad afterwards. And I was like, why, why am I continuing to fall into this? It's because I was enslaved to sin. And so many times, when, even when I got older, I would still fall into sins and I, I would get convicted less. And so I didn't even understand that I was even a slave anymore because I was in it so, so much already that I started to just go along with it. And I've noticed this more and more in my life that the more we constantly get into our sin, the more we fall into it, we tend to get comfortable with it. And we don't even feel like we are enslaved anymore. And that to me, at one point when I got into my life, that scared me. 
Because I said, if I'm enslaved and I'm so blinded that I don't know that I'm enslaved, how am I to be freed of it? How am I to get out of it? And so towards the end of um, chapter, six, chapter 6, verse 14, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Keyword, not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. When I heard that, I, I wanted to find out how. How sh- what shall I do to, to, to gain, to not have, that sin will not be able to have dominion over me? What, what do I have to do to be able to, get, to gain this? For you are not under law, but under grace. The grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God is what gives us power over sin. When we are struggling in our temptation, when we are struggling in our, in our, in our time, like when, when we feel like we are enslaved, we, we have to cry out to God and ask him for grace in that moment. That he may come to us, that he may have grace on us, that he may give us grace that we may be able to push through this temptation. Now, how do we know that we should no longer suffer with sin? Now, going the, the chap, chapter 6, verse 14, is because we are no longer under law, but under grace. And that is how we know that we, we should no longer be under sin. I, I remember talking, someone talked to me, uh, was talking to me, and they said that, brother, did you know that, um, well, he didn't call me brother, he said bro or something like that, but he said, do you, did you know that we can, like, our lives, no matter what we do, Christ died for us, so we are saved. And for me, that I, I, I understood that people thought like that, but for me, it never made sense. I, I knew for me, when I would sin, I felt uncomfortable. I knew it wasn't right. So I knew there must be some way that I can be, that I can, that I can be changed, that I can be like Christ. And so for me, I've wanted to find a way to be freed from it. Now, going to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the, it is the gift of God. For, gra- for by grace you have been saved through faith. So this grace, I, when I, we see it so many times written. It's, it's grace, grace, grace. And for, for me, when, when I think of grace, I think of having, like, when God has grace on you, he's helping you out. As in, it's not just you going, it through, you going through it on your own, but it's, it's God giving you grace and helping you out through your situation. And for me, I was, I was thinking and I was trying to understand, where do I get more grace? How do I gain more grace in my life so that in any time when I'm struggling, I can cry out to God and ask him for grace and I know that I will receive it. Now, I want to read, I want to um, change to James chapter 4, verse 6, but I want to read from 4 to 6. Um, so for now, I'll just read the chapter 6. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in, in our times of, of trial, in our times of temptation, if we are, if we are proud in, in some way, if we, if we exalt ourselves over others, if we do not humble ourselves, 
then it says here that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If God gives grace to the humble, I, I want to be humble. I, wa I want to humble myself as much as I can so that I can receive as much of this grace so that I am at the least under, under this, this slavery of the devil. And, and every time that I, that I fall, every time I feel like I'm about to lose this war, this battle, I know that I'll be able to cry out to God and say, Lord, give me grace in this moment, and I know I'll receive it. This is a time when, when we, we try to do everything. I, for me, this was the point where I was like, okay, this is, this is where I go. This is my point. This is where I want to be. I want to be humble. And as soon as I started trying to understand more the word humble, it came back to, to dying to myself daily, as in giving up my own will. Every time when somebody, I would go up to somebody and I would, I would talk to them, they wouldn't understand my point, and a lot of times this would be my siblings, but they wouldn't like to listen to me and I would, I would get upset or something, I'd storm away because they wouldn't agree with me. And I knew they were right, but I didn't want to go back to them and say, I'm, I'm really sorry, I apologize. And even as a kid, I still had that feeling where I, I didn't want to go back. And later, I, I felt that it was my pride. I felt prideful. I felt like I should have been right. It, it, was, it was me. I should have been right. And I don't want to go back and apologize. And even as a kid, I had that feeling. And it scares me that I grow up, and even when I'm older, I still have that. And I say, Lord, help me die to myself daily that I may pick up the cross and that I may, be follow, that I may follow you. And that when I am in going through any problem, that I can cry out to you and I will receive grace. And now sin. Sin has dominion over you. I, I searched up the word dominion because a lot of times there's these big words and I, I have to, I think I know what they mean, but I have to search them up to get the exact definition. And the, it breaks it down to control. So sin has control over you. In my life, a lot of times when I would do something wrong, I was like, why, why, do, why am I doing this? Why am I like this? It, it, like, it felt like I was getting controlled. And I, I know so many times I, I, I end up doing things and I, I feel like I'm being controlled, but I still go along with it. And sometimes I, I don't even cry out to God. Sometimes I feel like there's, there's no more hope and so I fall back into sin. And it's a constant cycle, and the devil likes to lie to us, and he likes to pull us with as many things as he can, because the more places he's lied to you, the less places you have confidence in God, where you understand that you're doing something wrong, yet he's got you beaten with being, being proud, so you're too prideful to go back and ask to be apologetic. And what I found in my own life is when I go back and I'm apologetic and when I ask for forgiveness or when I turn around as soon as I can, when I get convicted of something and I ask for forgiveness right away, that is when I feel like, I, I feel like I've done something right. I'm no longer walking away saying, man, I should have gone back, but I'm like, no, 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 you were right, you were right. And it just made me feel so wrong. And as soon as I found that, through God, I can receive grace through overcome these. But through, to receive grace in abundance, I must humble myself. And once I began humbling myself, brothers and sisters, I can tell you from my own experience, you're, you, start to, you start to see life different. You, you stop looking at people on the side of the street or people you drive by or even people below you. You stop seeing them as someone less than you. And it, and it hurts me so much because I remember when I would, I would, God would bless me so much. 
and I would look at other people who didn't have the same blessings and I would look down on them. And I was thinking of myself and I'm like, how can you be so low to look at someone like that? And I, I, I couldn't understand. And every time I would do it, I would drive away and I'd get convicted of it and I, I wouldn't understand. And I, I thank God that he has opened it up to me because ever since he has taught me to humble myself, I am able to wake up in the morning and drive to work and I see a person on the side of the street and I pray for them. I'm happy for them. People that are below me I, or the people that I think that are below me or the people that are just not as blessed as I used to think in, in ways, I, I begin to look at them and I'm like, they, like God is, doesn't bless people in, in, he doesn't bless us by how much money we have. He doesn't bless us by, like the thing that I've found the biggest blessing in my life is being humble. Is God humbling me, teaching me how to humble myself. And when I began to humble myself, everything else just began to disappear. I stopped thinking about wanting to become the, the, the top person, wanting to be, have like a, like, what is it called? Like, I didn't, I didn't, I no longer felt like I needed to be above others, where I needed to be better than others. I, and this news, when I heard, when I found out about this, when I started reading more into the word, and brought me joy. And now I want to read from um, James chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 10. And humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. When you start humbling yourself, when you start bringing yourself down below others, even those that you might think that you have to be above or that you, have to, you think you have to be over. When you start humbling yourself, he even says in the word, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I, I, I don't have anything else to say. When you start humbling yourself, you will start to realize a, a change in your life, a difference. When, when I hear be like Christ. When I think of Christ, I think of him of how humble he was and how he, he didn't treat anyone differently. He didn't, he didn't, he never mocked anybody. He never talked wrong about others. He was humble and he humbled himself. And a secret that I've learned is when you keep yourself humble and when you are the lowest, you don't think you're better than anyone. So you have nothing to, to boast about. You have nothing to brag about. You are at the lowest point. And what I found is when I'm on the floor, when I have fallen and I see that Jesus is greater than me, when I am in the dirt, I can no longer fall anymore. It's when you get up, you can even, you fall when you get up, when you think you're better, when you think you're, you're more than somebody, that is when you, is when you fall because you start, you, you're no longer humble. It is when you humble yourself that you start to see others different. It's a change of heart. It's, it's a change in, your, in you. And through that, God gives you grace to overcome sin. And I can tell you from my experience that so many things that I used to feel chained down to, I've been freed from. I am no longer struggling in those areas because I receive grace from Jesus Christ. And when the devil comes back to try to tempt me, I say, no, you cannot give me because I have grace from God. And he will try to lie to you. He will try to tell you that you've done this wrong or you've done, you've done that wrong. And the second we fall, it's okay to fall, but pick yourself back up and just remember that stay humble.
the more you humble yourself, the more, the lower you will get. Just remember, if you are in the ground, if you are on the ground, you can't fall. The, the way that I see it is if I keep myself in the ground, that's the, bless, the best place I can be because I, I, won't, I won't fall. As in, I won't, I won't exalt myself over people. And so it's the place where I find my victory. And now um, another chapter, another verse I want to read is from 1 Peter verse 5, 5. Uh, from, uh, yeah, 5-5, five, five, and I'll read lower. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I just read this, that same exact verse in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the same verse, the same, to, the same sentence appeared twice. And as I was reading through, if it appears more than once, there's got to be something more there. And when you read back at, um, in 1 Peter chapter, it's chapter 5, verse 5, um, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. It goes back to to submitting ourselves to our elders, which goes back to humbling ourselves. When we don't submit to our elders, we tend to exalt ourselves over them. We tend to think that we have a better opinion or a better, a better way of doing something. Like when my parents would tell me, hey, you know, Joseph, don't do this. And in my mind, I'd be like, oh, I know how to do it. And then I'd mess up on it. And, and I would be like, oh, I, I, I knew how to do it. Or I, every time I would try to think myself better than my parent or someone, an elder, I would end up falling down. I'd end up just falling back down and I would think about again, oh, why am I like this? But as soon as we humble ourselves, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, I want to let you guys know that if you are humble, God will give you grace. And through your times of, of, of of doubt, of times when you are falling into sin, where you feel like there is no hope. Many times it is because we are proud. And sometimes we don't, we don't even, we feel like we can go through the sin because we, we're, we can do it ourselves. But the devil outsmarts us. And he's got us in so many ways. And a lot of times, I even remember a point in my life when I thought that, that what I was doing was right. Yeah, I was enslaved. I, I, was, I was in the wrong. I was the one who was wrong. And as soon as I began to humble myself, everything started to change. I, I started to, to understand differently. And if I would wrong somebody, I would, I, I would immediately turn around and I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Like, and some people would be like, yo, why are you sorry? Like, it's totally fine. And I'm like, no, no, like I would get convicted about it, so I had to come up to them. It's a new way of life. It's the way that we pick up our cross and die to ourselves daily. We want to do our own will. But the will of God, how Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. That is how we should live our lives. That is how we should die to ourselves daily. And I want to leave you guys with, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Now, if we could all get, like, get down on our knees to pray.
And while we pray, I'd like us to just, just ask God to teach us how to be humble. Because it's not easy. Praise God, brothers and sisters. Before I get into the word that I have prepared, I want to do a little bit of shameless advertising, okay? I have a Bible study. It's on Tuesdays from 5.30 to about when youth service starts. So if you guys are in, you have been encouraged by the other brothers and you feel like maybe this can be a blessing for you, I'm going to tell you it will be a blessing for you. Go ahead. If you can make the time, if you can come and devote time to studying the Word of God, I believe it will be a blessing for you and also for me as we grow together and as we love one another as a church and we go through our differences and we settle stuff on the spot, it'll be a blessing for you and for me. There was another thing I wanted to announce. If you guys were not aware, there's this trendy looking box over there sitting on one of those tables. I've been trying to put it out every single week and the purpose of that is, if you weren't aware, was if you wanted someone to pray for you over a specific need, a special need, something that maybe you did announce today as a need or maybe you even didn't, you would write your need down in there, write your name or not, it's up to you. You want to keep it anonymous, you want to make it more personal, you write your name, you throw it in there, and at the end of service, usually, if there were a lot of them, I would divide them up, but usually we only have just a couple, so I just take them home and I pray over them throughout the week. So that's what that box is for. It's another way for you to participate. If you wanted a ministry personally and you said, hey, Dennis, I want to take some of those needs home and I want to pray over them over the course of the week, you can go ahead and freely do that. I want to encourage you guys with those things. And so getting into my word today, what did I have prepared for you guys this evening? There are two types of fear. What kind of fear am I talking about? The fear of of God. There is a fear that Christians, believers, children of God have toward God, and there is a fear that unbelievers have toward God. These are two different types of fear. Both of them are normal. Both of them are biblical. This is important. We live in a culture today where contemporary Christianity has taken the fear of God thrown it in a blender, and just made a complete mess out of it. They've said, you don't fear God. Perfect love casts out fear. And they're throwing in these verses, and you can never talk about the fear of God. I remember I was at a church maybe about a month or two ago, and I remember a young sister telling me she was preaching the gospel to a non-believer, and another sister came up to her and said, you can't do that. You're not preaching the gospel correctly. You're not supposed to talk about sin. You're not supposed to talk about hell. You're only supposed to talk about the love of God to them. You're not doing it right. So our contemporary Christianity has screwed us over when it comes to the fear of God. And so tonight I wanted to very quickly with the time that I have look at what these two types of fear are and to make an emphasis on the fear that the unbeliever has. That's the emphasis that I wanted to make tonight. And the first place I wanted to turn to was the book of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to be reading only from Hebrews Lord willing, I'll get through both sections, but we're doing Hebrews chapter 12 as of right now. Starting at verse 18, reading down to verse 29. And before I read, I just need to give you a little bit of context so you can keep things in mind. We're going to have two mountains here. You're going to see two different mountains. And as you read these two mountains, you're going to see two different environments, two different, you could say, 
two different parallels here, and I want you to keep that in mind as we read it. Starting at verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid. And trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 28, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So, these two mountains, and what do they mean? This first mountain that we've read about is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the mountain from which God spoke to the people of Israel. He manifested himself in a dark cloud. There was a loud trumpet, there was thunderings, and there was fire, and it was like a furnace going out into the earth. It was a terrifying sight. It even says, Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid in trembling, Moses, the meekest person on the earth at the time, the meekest person was the one who could have connection with God. It was the most humble person that could speak face to face with the Lord God. And even he was afraid and trembling at the sight of Mount Sinai. At this mountain, God gave the law by which Israel was supposed to walk. God gave the ordinances and the rules and the restrictions and the Ten Commandments. And with the law came a curse. Why was there a curse? There was a curse because no one could follow this law perfectly. Cursed is anyone who does not obey the law and live by it perfectly. And nobody could. And now we have the second mountain, Mount Zion. This is not the literal Mount Zion. This is the Mount Zion found in heaven. This is another name for the heaven where God is now abiding and where you and I as Christians will one day dwell in the presence of God forever. The new city, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This is the mountain that is inviting and welcoming and gracious. This is the mountain where we by grace can enter in being sprinkled by the blood that speaks of better things than Abel. Abel. The son of Adam and Eve offered his sacrifice faithfully to God, and his sin was 
covered. His sin was only covered. But the blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed us. It has forgiven us. And it has saved us to the uttermost. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ has made us white as snow. It has not only covered our sin, it has separated it as far as the east is from the west. And you and I can boldly enter into God's presence by His mercy and by His grace. And then he speaks, verse 25 down, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven when God came down on Mount Sinai and he shook the whole earth and he made his presence known in his strength, in his glory, in his dominion. He was shaking the earth literally. But he says, I will come again. And this time, I will not only shake the earth, I will shake the heavens. He is coming again to judge the earth. And everything on this earth that is temporary will be completely destroyed. Not only the earth, but the heavens. And there will be a brand new earth and a brand new heaven. If people could not escape the judgment of God on Mount Sinai, how much more so will we escape the judgment of God when he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ? And so the first kind of fear, the fear that we Christians are supposed to have, verse 28, that therefore since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, our salvation is not shaken, our salvation is eternal, our salvation no one can take away from us. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The fear that you and I have as Christians with our relationship toward God is not a terrifying fear. The fear that I have toward God my Father is not a fear where I am hiding from Him and I'm terrified from Him and I cannot stand in His presence. The fear that you and I have toward God is a fear of reverence and awe. The fear that you and I are to have toward our God is a fear that is expressed in our obedience to Him. The fear, the awe, the reverence will be expressed in my obedience to God. This is not a terrifying fear. This is not a fear that keeps me away from the Lord and keeps me running away from Him. This is a fear that simply expresses itself in my obedience to Him in His Word. I am in reverence to my God. I am in awe of who He is and what He has done. And I love Him. I am not terrified of him. I am not running from him. I have a reverence for him. I am in awe of him. And that is expressed in my obedience to him. But there is another fear. This is the fear that those who do not believe have. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. This is where we're going to turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 26 reading down to verse 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, down to 31. 
For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This passage that we read here has to do with the unbeliever. How do we know that it has to do with the unbeliever? Down at verse 39, it says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is a passage written to the non-believer, not to the Christian. We do not have a fearful expectation. We have been saved. We've been redeemed. Verse 26, what does it mean then, sinning willfully? What is the knowledge of the truth? What is it talking about? Verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This willful sinning that we see in this passage has to do with the deliberate and the habitual and the intentional rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This willful sinning has to do with the intentional, the habitual rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says, received the knowledge of the truth, what knowledge is this talking about? This is not talking about general spiritual knowledge. This is talking about specific knowledge. This is a knowledge that someone like Judas Iscariot had. Someone who was with Jesus Christ about three years, three and a half years maybe. He did not lack any knowledge whatsoever, Judas Iscariot. What was the problem? Was the problem that Christ's message was weak? Was the knowledge that Judas had frail? Absolutely not. The problem was the application of this truth was faulty. There was no faith in Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot did not have faith. Judas Iscariot had the knowledge of the Son of God. He had the knowledge. He did not have the faith. This is talking about the unbeliever. How else can we say that this is talking about the unbeliever? Verse 27, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. It'll devour the adversaries, the enemies of God. This is not talking about believers. This is talking about the enemies of God. And so, the fear of God to those who do not believe. It is real. It is terrifying. There is a fearful expectation. There is a judgment. To us who are born again, we read, or I read, verse 29, 30, and I get a little bit shooken. It says literally, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought 
worthy who has trampled the Son of God under foot. The God who has saved me, the Lord who has extended mercy to me that I did not deserve, I have trampled him under foot. To think that the unbeliever has trampled the King of kings, the Lord of lords, under foot. The God who has died on the cross shed his blood to give forgiveness of sins to save from sin. If I do not believe, I have trampled him under foot. This is almost an insanity. I'm reading this as a born-again Christian, and I am terrified to think that if I was in this condition, and I stood before the living God who shook the earth and ascended his fire like a furnace, and I stand before him having trampled his son under my feet, there is nothing but a fearful expectation. There is nothing but a judgment. It says, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. You treat the blood of Jesus Christ as garbage, as if it was cheap, as if the blood of Jesus Christ is something you can just get anywhere, as if the Son of God is available always for you, and that you can sin however you want, and insulted the spirit of grace. God is a graceful God. He is no longer speaking to us from Mount Sinai. He is no longer coming with a cloud of fire. He is coming from Mount Zion. And his grace is available to all who will receive him. If you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will surrender your will to him, and you will receive the sprinkling of a blood that makes you white as snow, you will be saved. You will be saved. And to us who are already saved, to us who love God, to us who have surrendered to the living God, the only fear that we should have is the one that causes us to serve him with a reverence and in awe. It's the fear that expresses itself in my obedience to him and his word. To the Christian the fear of God is not terrifying. It is not something that causes me to run from him. It simply causes me to hold him in esteem, to glorify his name, not to treat him as something less than the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the God who sits on the throne. I am in awe of his majesty and his glory and his mercy and his grace and his strength, the one who created all things, the beginning and the end, who has no beginning and no end, the eternal who knows me by name, who formed me, I am in awe of him, and I reverence him, and I love him. I am not terrified of him. And my fear is expressed in that I obey him. But to those who have not believed in our God, to those who do not love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to those of you in this place who have not surrendered before the cross of Christ, who have not humbled themselves before the living God, you have trampled the Son of God underfoot. You have insulted the Spirit of grace, and you have counted His blood as something cheap. And for you, there is absolutely nothing left but a fearful expectation. There is nothing left for you but a judgment and an end of eternal damnation. To you, we have verse 29 of chapter 12. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's bow and let us pray.